All right, well, let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have witnessed Jesus miraculously feed the 5,000 with 12 baskets remaining. Then we saw Jesus walk in the water through the night, and he showed up on the other side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. When the crowds followed him by boat the next day, they inquired how he got there. And Jesus refused to discuss his travel arrangements. Instead, he turned their attention to their real problem. It's found in verse 26. There he declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus was not interested in merely temporarily providing food for them, temporarily addressing their hunger problems, even though, of course, he does feed the hungry. In verse 29, Jesus explains the true reason he has come. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, do you believe that Jesus was indeed God's Son, sent to redeem us? Or has he come merely to put on a display of his power through miracles? Well, the crowds are hungering for more signs. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Well, isn't that a rude question? A betrayal of disbelief? Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 the day before. Have they already forgotten the multiplied bread, the multiplied fish? How many signs does one need to do? Certainly from Capernaum, Jesus could have walked right down to the water and stepped out on the sea. But he didn't. Nor did he provide more bread. He knows the crowd craves miracles, but the crowd has yet to embrace the miracle worker. Now, in verse 31, the crowds implicitly compare Jesus and Moses. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In Moses' day, the people were fed with manna six days a week for some 40 years. Imagine that. So when the Jews reference the manna in the wilderness, they are challenging Jesus as if to say, well, Moses fed us all those 40 years and you've only multiplied the bread once. So give us another sign. But do you recall the history of the wilderness wanderings? God had no sooner filled their bellies with manna than the people went off to construct a golden calf. Jesus knows that multiplying loaves and fish every day for 40 years won't change their hearts. He knows that soon enough they're going to go lusting after the flesh pots in Egypt. And that's why Jesus moves right to the heart of the matter. Let's read verses 32 through 34. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So in verse 32, Jesus clarifies that it wasn't Moses who provided all that manna. It was God. Jesus' Father did that. And after briefly just dispensing with their infatuation with Moses, Jesus just quickly moves on to what is infinitely more important than a daily meal. The manna pointed to the true bread from heaven. What God ultimately intends is to send not more manna, but the true bread, which can give life not merely to the Hebrews in the wilderness, but look at the text, but life to the world. The end of verse 33 suddenly just expands Jesus' ministry to the ends of the globe. And that's where we left off last week. Now, as we read on, the people initially appear to want this bread. They ask for it in verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. But do they really understand what Jesus means? Is their request any more sincere than the woman at the well who initially asked for living water but had not dealt with her sin problem. So Jesus needs to clarify his meaning, just as he had to clarify to the woman of the well what he meant by living water. So then what is the true bread? What is the bread of life? What is the bread out of heaven? And as the conversation continues, it becomes apparent the crowds do not understand Jesus at all. And let's just note how this develops. In verse 35, Jesus reiterates, I am the bread of life. Well, do they understand? No. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, the Jews are thinking in very literal terms. Jesus is bread falling down from heaven? Uh, We know his parents. He's the son of Joseph. He's a normal human being. How can he be bread? That makes no sense. So what do you think? At this point, will Jesus really clarify his illustration so nobody misunderstands? Actually, no. Instead of clarifying his illustration, Jesus just pushes the illustrations to the limits with language that sounds cannibalistic. Yes, indeed. Cannibalistic. Look at the text. You decide for yourself. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Does Jesus clarify? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you ever read passages in Scripture and wonder, well, why did Jesus say that? Why did God explain it like that? Why did Paul write it that way? I mean, if I was writing it, if I was saying it, I'd say, this is one of those passages. It's like, why did Jesus say that? His language is truly shocking, deliberately shocking. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Yes, indeed, this is a really difficult saying. Well, friends, wouldn't you have the same response? And would you go as far as the crowd went? Notice their further response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus employed very difficult language. He refused to do another miracle. And why should he? All they've come for is to get their bellies full, and so the people walk away. Now, I will have to explain Jesus' difficult language in a future sermon, but let's at least get the big picture, all right? Bread was a staple food source in Israel. So we're fish, by the way. The people simply could not survive, would not survive without bread. Many societies in human history have a similar staple food. A staple food is a mass-produced food in a society without which that population just will not survive. If we look at the history of the Native Americans, maize or corn was a staple food. Without it, they don't survive. In many Asian communities, even to the present hour, rice is a staple food source. It is for Joseph to this very day. We know this, right? It's really difficult for us to appreciate how staple foods function in a society when we have so much variety and so much abundance. But for the Jews, without bread, starvation would follow. No bread, you're going to starve. So Jesus deliberately points to a food source that people deliberately just, they they cannot survive without. They can't live without it. And from this analogy, Jesus then points to himself as an even more important life source without which we cannot survive. In fact, Jesus is a life source that unlike bread, which sustains for a day, will sustain forever. Jesus is the staple food of eternity. That's what he's saying. That's the big picture of what he's after with this bread of life illustration. And of course, we'll come back and talk about that sort of cannibalistic language later on. All right? But with all this in place, let's back up now and let's engage with the delightful words of verses 35 through 40 and see whether we can make sense of this paragraph this morning. This paragraph really sets us up for everything to follow. Verses 35 through 40. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Now that statement actually pulls together both Jesus' encounter with the Jews right here in John 6 and his earlier encounter with the one of the well in John 4. He told the woman at the well that he was the water of life. Those who come to him will never again thirst. And likewise, in this context, Jesus is the bread of life. And those who come to him will never hunger. Now, verse 35, then, is Jesus' answer to the request of the Jews back in verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. What's the answer? Verse 35. But unlike the Jews, Jesus is not talking about merely physical hunger or physical thirst. That also became very clear in this conversation with the woman at the well. He's talking about their spiritual needs. Jesus is actually talking about filling up that great empty void in every sinful human heart. Solomon expressed it in Ecclesiastes. There is a vanity, there is a futility, there is a hollow center in our humanity. And it cannot be fulfilled with anything in life that we've ever discovered before Christ. At our core, we are empty. And we can't find a thing that really fills us. That's the problem. Sin has so ravaged our hearts that we are hollow men and hollow women looking for some truth to finally satisfy us. And that hollow core is revealed really crucially, I think, in one of the central questions of our age. What is the question everybody is asking these days? It's the question of identity. Our culture is obsessed with questions about our core human identity. That's, by the way, part of the reason I really want to look at Ecclesiastes, because we're going to get some answers. But we know that there are questions about racial identity. How do you respond to the ugly truth that your ancestors were indeed enslaved by the same people who proclaimed liberty for all men? Questions of sexual identity. If a person has been same-sex attracted for as long as he can remember, did God, did God create him that way? Is that his identity? Questions about gender identity. Currently there are more than 50 gender options recognized in social media with a custom option on Facebook. Questions about poverty and wealth identity. Has capitalism unjustly favored white males? Is capitalism responsible for the evils of colonialism? These are live questions out there. You know it. And friends, these questions of identity inevitably touch every last one of us. Every one of us. Who are you when you transition out of your parents' home to make your own way in the world? I mean, where's your identity? Can you find identity in your vocation, your marriage, your children? Do you lose identity through singleness, childlessness, divorce, or retirement? Do you lose your identity through a debilitating sickness or disease, or through caring for a spouse with Alzheimer's who no longer even recognizes you? 
In Ecclesiastes, Solomon details his search for identity. He looked to wealth, to power, to prestige, to vocation, to scholarship, an unbridled sexual profligacy. He nevertheless expressed his extreme frustration with all these identities. Vanity of vanities. Frustration upon frustration. Utter futility, he says. That's what that language means. Vanity is emptiness. He is a hollow man. Despite having abundant wealth, time, and power to fulfill all those crevices of his being, Solomon was a frustrated, rich, young ruler. He had wealth. He had time. He had power. And he was totally frustrated. In his confessions, Augustine likewise described his search for identity. That's, that's what the confessions is about. He kept looking for identity. And what he found was hollowness. As a youth, Augustine prayed, Give me chastity and self-constraint, but not right now. He became a thief. He pursued debauchery and sexual pleasures. He sired a son out of wedlock. He described his city of Carthage, North Africa, as a, quote, hissing cauldron of illicit love. He was a botched man. Augustine wrote, I became evil for no reason. The only motive I had for the wickedness was the wickedness itself. I was, it was disgusting, but I loved it. I love the fact that I was ruining myself. I love falling. Not the thing that I have fallen for, but simply falling itself. My depraved soul plummeted from God's firmament into ruin. That's the history of every man on this planet. And Augustine describes his condition in a single word. Restless. That is precisely our problem. We are restless. At the present hour, people are searching for new ways to define themselves. You know it, I know it. That's what they're doing. New ideological frameworks through which to express gender and sexuality. New theories through which to interpret questions of race and ethnicity. New sociological theories and new scholars to affirm our vices. New clinical psychologists to diagnose our conditions and make us feel really good about ourselves. That's what the world is up to. And for all of our efforts, we are still hollow in the inside. You know this because we keep on searching. That's what our culture is doing. We're still searching. All of those questions of identity point to the same root problem. And it's this. We are unwilling to believe that Jesus Christ truly satisfies. That's the problem with our world. We are too easily persuaded not to believe and to go looking for something else that satisfies. That's the problem. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. That's your problem. Friends, this is the great existential crisis that confronts every human being. Are we willing to abandon our search for identity apart from Jesus Christ? And to actually believe that He will satisfy. All have to face that question. I have on a previous occasion read the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, a lesbian, feminist, and English professor who spent 
a couple years contemplating embracing Christ. I got to hear her speak at Bob Jones just a few weeks ago. It was really, really encouraging. Encouraging. But here's what she finally wrote. I pray for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my taste, my books, and my tomorrows. Well, that is the prayer of faith of a hollow woman who has everything she wanted and finally realizes she's still not satisfied. She abandons everything to come to Jesus Christ for satisfaction. And friends, it was no easy task. Rosaria is a modern Augustine who came kicking and dragging her feet and clawing the ground into the kingdom. But she could not just escape the force of the man from Nazareth. Augustine spent the first 30 years of his life pursuing sexuality and philosophy and pleasure. And at long last, like the prodigal son, he found himself with nothing but husk thrown to the hogs. They did not satisfy his hungry soul. And so we turn to Christ confessing, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless, restless until it finds rest in you. Now friends, I want to ask you a really crucial question. A question that really becomes relevant in our efforts to win people like Rosaria Butterfield to Christ. How does a person finally come to the point where he or she just reaches out and lays hold on Christ in faith? How do they get to that point? That question really becomes acute when you realize that people often do not understand just how deeply Jesus satisfies the hungry soul until after they've walked with him for many years. That's interesting. They don't know how deeply he satisfies, so how do you encourage them to lay hold on Jesus? Coming to Jesus for satisfaction of the soul, friends, is indeed a matter of faith. Because we don't realize how deeply he satisfies. You just have to say, I'll step out in faith and believe that he's going to satisfy me. C.S. Lewis titled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He came through faith, that is true, but only afterwards did he understand how deeply Jesus offered very deep, satisfying joy. So when a person comes to Christ, then what, what drives that decision? Well, let's examine verse 37, a verse that requires some very careful attention. Verse 37 Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, who is responsible? God or the person? 
When a person comes to Jesus Christ, the Father was indeed behind that decision. How can you deny that? Jesus just said it. The Father gives people to the Son. At the same time, Jesus emphasizes whoever comes. Well, how can you deny that? It's right there in the text. So let's go right ahead and just raise the whole question of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, as we have done on previous occasions. All right, who is responsible? Friends, God's sovereignty is indeed a major theme in John's gospel. And we dare not back down from it without abusing the word. But at the same time, John's emphasis on God's sovereignty does not override our own human responsibility to come to Jesus in faith. Here's what D.A. Carson says of these verses. John is not embarrassed by this theme, that's God's sovereignty, because unlike many contemporary philosophers and theologians, he does not think that human responsibility is thereby mitigated. Carson continues, John can speak with ease of those who look to the Son and believe in Him. This they must do if they are to enjoy eternal life. But this responsibility to exercise faith does not, for the evangelist, that is for John, make God contingent or secondary. So, do we understand what he's saying? What he's saying is, accept God's sovereignty and your own responsibility in salvation. Carson writes, John is quite happy with a position that modern philosophy calls compatibilism. That may be a big term to you, but compatibilism was the viewpoint of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Maybe not our, I don't know about our own Jonathan Edwards, but Jonathan Edwards, the great awakening preacher. And it really is a matter of people just simply listening to the text and taking in the entire counsel of God's Word and letting our theories fall into place afterwards. Take in the entire counsel of God's Word Listen to everything God writes. What it says is true. And if you can't get it all systematized in your head into a tidy logical sequence, well, you've done the more important work of actually listening to the Word of God. That's what's most crucial. And very often in Scripture, there are statements that would seemingly pull us in two different directions. And unabashedly, the Scripture just presents us with both in this sort of complex web of thought. For example... This is probably my favorite example, and I've used it before. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? Was his crucifixion a matter of divine sovereignty or human responsibility? Well, would you just listen to how effortlessly Peter answers the question without trying to resolve further questions? Here's what he said. At Pentecost, he preached, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So was Jesus delivered up for crucifixion because of the definite plan of a foreknowing God? Yes. How can you deny that? Was Jesus' crucifixion the wicked act of lawless men responsible for their crimes? Yes. Peter just said it. Now, you may have more questions you want to ask, but you you dare not tread on a clear statement of Scripture. 
Our duty is to believe the Scripture even when we cannot exhaustively understand the Scripture. And friends, let's just take comfort in the fact that God did not design you with a mind large enough, all right, a big enough brain to resolve all the mysteries and all the inscrutable uncertainties about the universe. Why do you suppose God would design reality so simply? So simple it fit into your brain? That seems beneath God, thank you very much. Do you understand the mystery of the hypostatic union, divine and human and one person? Do you understand the tension between the oneness and the plurality of God? The intersection between the spirit and the human and the composition of Scripture? Do you comprehend your own humanity? How many of you really understand what God made when he made you? Your body, your soul. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Chesterton put it so well in his introduction to the book of Job. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. So friends, look at the text of verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. If you're a believer, you know why? It's because God the Father gave you to His Son and you will come. That is divine sovereignty. And God does not miss a soul that He has determined to give to Christ. All will come. So what's my responsibility then? Well, keep reading. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friend, just come to Jesus. He will never cast you away. Just come. Whoever you are, just come. You need not fear that you're unelect. Jesus will never, never, ever, ever cast you away if you just come to him. Whoever you are, friend, just come. That's what he tells you to do. If Jesus cast you out, he is a liar. And he cannot lie. So listen to what Rosaria Butterfield prayed, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to emphasize four words. That night, she said, I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart And if he was real, and, listen to this, and if I was his, I pray that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. Well, I don't know whether Rosario was reading John chapter 6, but she could have been. Those four words, if I was his, reflect the first half of verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's what she's confessing. If indeed the Father gave Rosario to Jesus, then I or she was His. But at the same time, her prayer reflected her own responsibility. God, save me. God, give me the strength to become a disciple. Her whole prayer is an expression of faith of a woman coming to God. So friends, the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation, I think, is really crucially important because it tells us that God has determined to be loved by all those who believe on him 
Think of that. God has determined to be loved by all those who believe on Him. And God's sovereignty and human salvation just overrides our inability to come to Him with perfect repentance, perfect love, or perfect faith. God, God has to drive us to Jesus because in our own sinfulness we would never come to Him in full repentance and love and faith. We wouldn't do it on our own. Nevertheless, if human choice is totally obliterated in God's, sovereign, God, God's sovereignty, let me say that again, if human choice is obliterated by God's sovereignty, then love is equally obliterated because robots do not love. God has, to, has determined to be loved by those who put their faith in Him. Now, let's just really develop the application for just a moment. God, we're told, gives us to Jesus. And that ought to be a source of everlasting reassurance for us and not doubt. This is not a matter of doubt. Too many doubtful Christians just wallow around in despair when they recognize their inability inability to generate a perfect response to God. And I think this really can be a crucial problem for people who grew up in a Christian home and never see that dramatic change overnight because they were kept from the world. Well, did I, did I really come to Christ with a perfect response? Did I say all the right words in my prayer? Did I understand all the right doctrines? Did I really feel adequate sorrow in my heart? Shouldn't I generate some more emotion, more tears, more pious words so that my faith is really genuine? Friends, the problem is that we are so sinful we cannot even do a good job repenting. Jesus, friends, entered the waters of baptism for us, the baptism of repentance, not because He sinned. But apparently we can't even repent like we should. If I can quote Dennis Clark from Wednesday night, my repenting needs repenting of. I don't know if it was you that said that or you quoted a Puritan. I just that stuck. My repenting needs repenting of. We're not even very good at repenting, are we? In Mark 9, the father who came to Jesus in faith nevertheless exclaimed, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Well, we're not even very good at putting our faith in Christ. Here's all the faith I have. Now deal with the rest of my doubt, please. Friends, left to yourself, you would never produce perfect repentance or perfect faith. Don't turn repentance into a work. Don't turn faith into a work. Left to yourself, you'd never get there. You cannot produce perfect repentance. If you think you can, repent of your pride. And left to yourself, again, you would never produce perfect faith. But just cry out to God, I I believe because you've told me to. And help my unbelief. And friends, when you come to Jesus, you need not fear that it was all up to you. Oh, I had all the right emotions, and I cried a sufficient number of tears, and I just felt badly enough, and I confessed all the right sins, and I believe all the right doctrines, and I got it all worked out, and now I'm really a believer. Friends, when you come to Christ and you put your faith in Him, it's, it's the wind of Almighty God who is filling your sails and just driving you on to Jesus. And that ought to be a source of great comfort, not a source of discouragement. 
So with that in place, let's just keep reading and let's observe how Jesus describes his mission. But keep this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in proper perspective. In verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has come to accomplish the Father's will. But what precisely is God's will? Well, keep reading, and notice once again how Jesus answers the question with two answers, not one. Two answers that take us in two different directions. Verse 39, I'm sorry, verse 38. Verse 39, sorry. First answer. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Second answer, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Well, once again, Jesus has effortlessly combines divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Verse 39, look at the text, emphasizes God's sovereignty. God determines that Jesus will not lose a single person that God has given him. Jesus will, rise, will raise up all those given to him by the Father at the last day. Our, our salvation, friends, is not guaranteed in human merit or human decision. It is guaranteed in God. God has determined that Jesus will not lose a single soul that belongs to him. That's reassuring. But now in verse 40, we have an emphasis on human responsibility and it flows right out of God's sovereignty. God has willed that anyone who looks on the Son and believes, he will have eternal life. So if you want eternal life, well then just look at the Son. Look at the Son. Everyone who looks at the Son will be resurrected. And God has willed that if you just look, At the sun, you will be resurrected. So what is my responsibility? Friend, look at the sun and believe. Friends, nowhere in Scripture are we called to just wallow in misery, wondering whether God gave us to the sun. We are called to look and to believe. So, if you are struggling with the question, am I elect by the will of God? Has God predestined me to salvation by His will? Let me just encourage you to just look right at verse 40. You want to know what God's will is? Well, here here is Jesus' counsel for you, friend. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. God has determined that all you have to do is look on Jesus and believe. So just look on Jesus and believe. And you will find that he satisfies. He satisfies like bread for a starving soul. And Jesus, my friend, will fill that empty void in your soul. That no amount of sex or wealth or power or prestige or life experiences will ever satisfy. Go back and read the book of Ecclesiastes. 
and see if it resonates with you. All that hollowness, all that emptiness, and see whether Jesus might just surprise you with joy. And friends, if you think about hell, the place of the damned, what is that place? but an eternal search for identity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where people go when they refuse to find their identity in Christ alone. Now in conclusion, let me just speak to believers who have walked with Christ for many, many years. You might be tempted to interpret this sermon as a salvation invitation to the lost, and it certainly is that. In fact, any time Jesus speaks, there is an invitation to come to Him and to embrace His Word. So we do indeed invite any unbeliever here to explore more about Jesus. But I think sometimes as believers we can hear sermons like this and we can think that's really great for that person sitting over there. Maybe this person over here might not be a believer. Or if only Aunt so-and-so could hear this, what about me? Well... Let's just recognize that there is a different character to the bread of life that Jesus offers you than the kind of bread that physically sustains you each day. When you eat a loaf of bread and it's gone, it nourishes you for a time. It temporarily energizes your body and that's it. When Jesus describes Himself as bread out of heaven, He is categorically different from every other kind of bread. He's like the widow's pitcher that just never runs dry. Jesus just keeps on giving. That's the point. Look again at verses 52 through 54. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood... You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And would you notice in particular the the words in verse 54, feeds and drinks. Feeds and drinks. In Greek, these are present, active participles. What does that mean? Well, that means they can be translated feeding continually or drinking continually. In other words, they refer to an ongoing, relentless activity. Jesus is the bread that just keeps on giving and keeps on satisfying. He is the water of life that just keeps on replenishing our empty souls. Jesus just keeps on giving. So it is true that there's a moment when you come to Christ for justification. We are justified by faith apart from human works. But friends, that is just the beginning of a lifelong process of partaking of the bread of life. We believe, and the Father guarantees us that we will be raised up at the last day. But in the meantime, we just keep on feeding ourselves with the bread of life. We just keep on drinking the water of life. We keep on satisfying ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a one-and-done sort of thing. This is a new reality. God never intended for our salvation to be a one-time prayer that we prayed, and now we can just go back to our old, old normal lives. Friends, that is not the gospel. Again, let's be clear. Salvation does happen in a moment in time. When you're pronounced just on the basis of Christ's righteousness, 
But salvation, biblically speaking, also includes our sanctification, our ongoing sanctification. So in other words, we just have to constantly fill our hollow selves with Jesus and His Gospel. We need to eat and drink the Gospel every day. This is how, friends, you're going to fill that hollow self that is doing battle with the flesh. Let Jesus just fill you. All those empty spaces in your life, let Jesus fill those. All those lonely moments of acute temptation. You know what I'm talking about. Those lonely moments of acute temptation. All those moments of unyielding despair. All those moments of frustration that lead to sin. All those experiences of utter futility that Solomon writes about. Let Jesus just come and fill out all those spaces. And friends, when Jesus just fills our empty souls, He will drive out all those fleshly appetites. He is the bread that satisfies. He is the water that becomes a well of water springing up to eternal life. So we pray together. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would embrace the gospel, yes, but also preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Preach the gospel to ourselves in moments of temptation. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.